Jerry Altamirano is our guest today on the Independent Life Podcast. I am so jacked after talking with him. What a wise, deep person he is, described as being a socially conscious, civic-minded, and philosophically astute. Amen to all that. He's been described also as an emotionally intelligent relationship builder who believes in changing people's hearts and minds by connecting people to their why. Holy smokes, like this conversation was so amazing. Honestly, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this a few times to be able to fully absorb and conceptualize a lot that he was just dropping in here. He is so deep, so wide on everything that we got to talk about. But he, he ends up first getting into you know how he was raised, all the different parts of his identity and how they intersect with one another and how that's really helped to shape his philosophical uh, approach to disability, inclusion, equity, access, and how through all of that, he's become so successful in the area of his work, which is in working with organizations to help promote disability, inclusion, and he's got an incredible uh, amount of experience in this area and talks about some of the some of the challenges, some of the facilitators, where we have been and where we are and where we're going in terms of a, a disability movement. He gets into so many different kind of things. And, and I really enjoy how just self-aware he is and really tying into a lot of the things that connect people together and how we're all one yet diverse and having to the ability to connect and build the skills needed for empathy, how we get into changing systems, but also changing hearts. And it's not an either or, it's an and both. We talk about some of the challenges that advocates have in the work that we do and some of the ways that he thinks that we can really help to make sure that we all stay on the same page to lift each other up and to just be sources of um, inspiration, no matter what our background is, acknowledging that you know people have different backgrounds and that's gonna really help to form how we see the world. And even if it's different, how we can all get together and to be on the same page and be unified, even if we do come from different places and different backgrounds. We talk about his take on if a utopia was to exist, uh, what it would look like, but even, you know, th th is that an illusion? And should it be more about process than destination? So without further ado, because he has just so much to say that is just mind-blowing, I give you the one, the only, Jerry Altamirano. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I am so overjoyed right now to be talking with you, Jerry Altamirano. You were on, a, man, season one early on. I, I want to say you were within the first five episodes that we launched. It was like you were like on my A-list. It's been a couple of years since we've even communicated and talked with one another. So I'm glad like I'm checking both boxes right now where I get to catch up with you and be able to record it for our listeners. Thank you for being with us today, Jerry. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoy our macro uh, <laughs> conversations and that connect to sort of real struggles and issues. And as you know, someone leading uh, disability services, you know that more than, than anyone. So I appreciate you having me. Well, I always learn something when I when I connect with you. And, and you, you know, for me, I think a real leader is like somebody that lifts other people up and you lift me up by like inspiring me and giving me things to think about, challenging my old paradigms and seeing the world. So, you know, it, it's just an honor to be here with you, Jerry. Likewise. Thank you so much. Let's jump into this. Maybe let's set some, some context up uh, a little bit here. And, uh, you know, hopefully this question will you know be able to kind of lay down the groundwork for what's to come. But maybe if you don't mind, maybe um, give us a summation of your lived experiences and how it's really helped to shape your philosophy on disability, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of center the reality that I'm, um, you know, a son of immigrants. My family immigrated here from Mexico in the early 70s. I was born shortly after my my mom actually had to navigate, you know, having a kid who had sort of a congenital heart disease. And so, you know, as a Spanish-speaking mother who really relied on the expertise of physicians at that time, really had to navigate that. And so I think my connection to disability and connection to um, realizing that there are inequities in the world for different populations comes from, from that, that having to navigate my condition while also, you know, navigating the immigration process, navigating sort of not being native to Texas where my family moved and still keeping the, the positive parts of yourself, the, the things that you value and not sort of compromising those in order to assimilate or in order to, to fit into this world. So that's where it starts, really. I, I was born with a heart murmur um, and it really impacted how I was treated in schools. Um, my sort of concept of health and mortality, to be honest, was really sort of early on, I had awareness of mortality as a kid, which is always hard. Mm that sort of shaped my perception of what matters and what I want to do in this world and how I can help others. So definitely from that, that altruistic perspective is, is, is centered and realizing that you want to make a difference before, before, you know, you, you leave this, this realm. Yeah. In terms of like those experiences that you've had, you know, how would you then say that it is shaped your philosophy on uh, disability, equity, and inclusion. So maybe we're like getting a little bit of your philosophy and it would help us to back in how like those experiences as you were growing up, facing your own mortality at a very early age and the, the impact that it might have in, in school in such a formative time. Like when you mentioned that, the, one of the things that jumped out to me was like, man, trauma. Like you were experiencing perhaps trauma at such an early time. So I imagine that was pretty formative. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that there's there's definitely this conundrum. Um, uh, I felt so loved by my family growing up, and 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 sort of equipped with this idea that I can achieve anything that I want. So especially like you know, thinking about sort of the American dream and your family really instilling this this drive and preservation of wanting to achieve great things here in America, coupled with the reality that I had some limitations because of my sort of physiology, and then moving towards realizing that, wait, not only are there limitations because of just my circumstances, 
but also because of the barriers that are that are constructed beyond my my individual person, mm-hmm. right? In terms of of access to opportunities, in terms of and we're from a I'm a working class family, right? So access to even resources and whatnot, access to information and Spanish speaking resources and, and support. So um, that really that rub and that conundrum of of knowing that I had worth and I had value that was coming from my family telling me my mother's love, I think, is the anecdote anecdote to internalizing oppression. And so even in some, some of my my sort of scholarship, I, I write about, well, what is what sort of equips people who are constantly pushed down or oppressed to to overcome things and, and to me the antidote is really love awesome and so I think I think about my mom's love for 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 me and I think about wanting to have sort of this idealist philosophy that that you can achieve anything coupled coupled with with the the real very real struggle and feelings of of recognizing the barrier barriers allowed me to almost develop this inherent skill of strategizing, uh, navigating, you know, a compulsory uh, heteronormativity and sort of a, a world that is, you know, normed t- towards certain people and sort of equipped me with developing the strategy of how to maneuver through it. Uh, and that sort of lens, that sort of innate skill and being queer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and avoiding sort of persecution or avoiding, you know, bullying allowed me to realize, hey, there are there are these strings that are being pulled all around us. And if we only recognize how the inequities exist, we can and how they're affecting certain communities, we can similarly create strategies to undo those inequities and facilitate opportunity uh, in a way that is enriching and that recognizes the human dignity of so, so many people. And I think that's the crux of my sort of philosophy that that positioned me to work in DI strategy and championing disability inclusion and all the other stuff that I'm sure we're going to get to. So, but it, it really sort of lies in that conundrum of seeing hegemonic sense making uh-huh. and and wanting to figure out a sort of or querying, to be honest, a route to survival. Wow, it's super deep. I, I, I took some notes on where we're going to drill in here. Um, before I do, how would you explain to people, you know, because you're talking basically here about all these different identity sections, you know, that are coming together into intersecting with one another. How would you explain how your, your experiences and all the, these different areas coming together all at once, um, maybe similar or different to other people that might not have such diversity in their background and lived experiences? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think that makes my previous response a little bit more accessible in that so there's this there's this coin term um that really comes from black and latina feminist scholarship and it's sort of um interrupting hegemonic sense making um and sort of the idea that the that the world functions in a certain way right and there's all of these rules for functioning that governing our society right and when you are an individual that has multiple identities that are continuously oppressed in various routes of your life, uh-huh. in various sets. For example, um, if you're queer, you go, well, there's all of these rules that govern queerness or your ability to express and live your queerness that are heteronormative, right? And then there's, and then there's also all of these rules, right, 
ableism, if we want to call it, to homophobia, transphobia, racism, all of these isms that exist, right? And so when you see that these rules are sort of clashing against each other or that you have to reduce yourself and present a version of yourself, you start to sort of resist that and say, wait, wait a minute, this isn't right, and conceive a, a, an alternative route for you to be yourself and self-author yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody has those realizations because maybe not everybody sees those conflicting narratives or those conflicting sort of expectations of how to perform and exist as a human. Um, but what, what we do all have, even if we don't sort of have those identities or, or you know, diverse perspectives, we all have this inherent empathy and compassion as human beings. That is a skill that needs to be developed. Huh. I think yeah. people, people think that, you know, you know, Sally Sue is a great person and, you know, they're born with all this compassion, and empathy, maybe so, but, but just like you develop your skills around, you know, whether it's cooking or anything else, sure. it's a skill that you can train and develop with, with practice, with intentionality. And so compassion and empathy is the key to seeing the, the, the man behind the curtain, if you will, mm -hmm. or seeing the, the, the strings that are being pulled all around you or seeing the inequity and the hegemonic sense-making that, that makes you prune yourself and take pieces off of mm -hmm. yourself and a version of yourself that you think the world wants to see. Um, and so if we hone in on our skill of compassion uh, and empathy through perspective taking, through either, you know, reading memoirs about other walks of life and different people of, you know, having friends and tell their story to you and, you know, having a diverse network of, of peers and colleagues uh, of, you know, having dialogue across difference, then you're able to gain more skills and perspective taking and build your capacity for compassion and empathy so that you can actually care, see these inequities all around you and then do something about it. But it starts truly with that self-awareness and that introspection. And, and what is my relationship to others? How, how do I connect? And if we, we are, the issue now in times is that we exist in silos. The people that we invite over to, to dinner look like us, sound like us, whether you know, in terms of, of our identities or in terms of our values and beliefs. And so we don't ever get to dialogue across difference and build that compassion. So I, that's what I would say. We all have that common thread as humans, regardless of identity or, or diversity. It, it's that ability to, to take perspective, care, empathize, change, and activate so that we can make the world better. Wow. You, once again, you have so much there. You could write a book. What I'm hearing also is, is like how having these multiple identities has really allowed you to become more self-aware and through becoming self-aware, you almost are transcending identity to like, I'm, I'm a human and, and almost stripping it out. I think you said pruning. I imagine like the onion just peeling itself, peeling itself until like, I like to ask myself like the question continuously, like, who am I? Like, who am I really? Am I these demographic descriptors? Am I the experiences that I had? Am I the roles that I fill? Um, you know, what, am I, am my birth order, my age, like, what, what is it? What, who am I really? And ultimately I keep coming to like consciousness, like pure consciousness. And, and, and I'm not necessarily my mind or my thoughts or, you know, it, 
and I could get woo-woo on this, but uh, at the same time, I really like where you go towards like who I am, who you are, is more alike than different, especially when we talk about, maybe it's, you know, we, you and I know what it's like to feel love, come from two different races. You know, you and I have different sexual orientations, but we know what it feels like to feel joy, you know, or frustration or like all these other kind of things that to me is more connecting and can build that skill of empathy than, you know, looking at and comparing and contrasting like our demographic differences that form our identity as society will tell us who we are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I heard so so I was facilitating a training, a DI training, and um, you know, one of my participants sort of shared, you know, Jerry, I definitely believe in creating spaces for different identities. We were talking about employee resource groups, for example, and and how they saw the importance of definitely having, you know, an, a women's business group or an LGBTQ plus staff group, so on and so forth, right? But then they made this this observation that you know, the further we categorize ourselves and create these silos of people, the further sort of we we remove our connection to one another and then exist in pockets. Yeah. And and I said, yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's the problem with staying solely within identity politics and understanding that as the the crux of diversity, equity, inclusion work. Yeah. And it's not that that's an avenue and a medium to understand the experiences of these different groups so that we can language and articulate what's happening, right? And so when we get these groups together, um, you know, if I'm part of an affinity group, we share common experiences, we start to sort of see the writings on the wall, right? And we say, hey, you're experiencing, you know, inequity or marginalization in these ways, and so am I, and it's unfair. And we start to sort of dialogue again and see the, the matrix around what's happening around us that is that's creating this. Similarly, these other groups, as they meet, they might have similar conversations. What doesn't often happen, though, is the intersectionality and, and, the, and the meeting of the minds of all of groups, regardless of identity, right? Because diversity includes everyone, right? Different perspectives yeah. and walks of life to then understand, hey, y'all, we are all experiencing some sort of oppression because of these larger social structures that, yes, as a society and humanity we've created, but they don't serve us purpose anymore. And they're actually harmful, uh -huh. right? Who are, who are the folks benefiting from, from capitalism, right? It, that's the, the 1%, the rich. And uh -huh. so most of us aren't part of that group. And so if enough of us get together to understand, have dialogue across difference, create intersectional conversations, then we can find that commonality, but also realize, realize that there's a direct connection between racism and ableism and sexism and homophobia. Audre Lorde says, I care about multiple issues, right? We don't, we don't live single issued lives. And uh, not that that's not their quote directly, but it, it's to that effect of we can't sort of look at an isolation at an issue without considering how this community is, is receiving the symptom and the impact of, of this larger social structure. But it also looks differently for trans folks, for disabled folks, for, mm -hmm. for queer folks. So yeah, I mean, in a post-racial, post-gendered society, utopian future, <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't have these classifications for one another. But in the interim, it allows us to language our experience and cr create solutions for addressing what's hurting us. 
Yeah, it's kind of like one of those things like it's that the life is so full of paradoxes. So celebrating diversity while also recognizing we're all one. Right. And yeah. And, and I think you make a really interesting point that oftentimes we'll silo ourselves in these identity groups that um, will then if we're not cross pollinating and communicating with one another, we're not realizing that we have so much in common. And, and could be collaborating and, and connecting. But I almost feel like the inverse sometimes happens where it's kind of like, oh yeah, your group has it that bad? Well, get what we're going through. And it comes to like this com- competition on who's had it worse or kind of one-upping or you know comparing and contrasting in that direction. And it kind of seems to me, I don't know if that's human nature or, or what it might be, but it's like the larger systemic problems want it would almost want it that way like kind of divide and conquer and keep it divided rather than you know uh, coming together figuring out how we have more in common than different and leveraging that commonality to really come up with some real tangible solutions and not stay compartmentalized you're 100 right it's 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 a oppression olympics but not (laughs) not because we're sort of oh comparing, you know, battle scars or woe is I, you know, I, we have it worse, but rather because we, even in our, our attempt to articulate our oppression and find solace and community, and even in, 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 you know, communities across difference, we are still existing in, in a society that forces us to compete. Mm-hmm. And so it's human nature when we're competing for resources, for reparations, for access, for opportunity, right? And it's this philosophy of, of scarcity, this idea of scarcity that there's not enough for all of us. So then we have to sort of demonstrate in whatever ways that we deserve it the most because we're hurting the most or we haven't had access the most. And all of it is true, right? There could be multiple realities, multiple truths. I think what, what's important is to realize who is who is telling us this paradigm of scarcity that there aren't there's not enough and how can we fight that back to create a life of abundance where we are we are enjoying and thriving and you know having leisure time and not having you know to work to live and being just humans um in a planet that had all of the resources that we needed to have at one point and truly if, if we think about it there's this like pressure to to work and to work and to work because of the, the meritocracy of well what I make is mine versus resource sharing versus you know uh, developing co-ops versus having an interdependence mm. right to one another um, versus you know we're we're sort of storing resources and storing stuff for the winter for rainy day and and we're all fighting for whatever scraps are left and fighting for abundance for all communities is, is I think my goal and unlearning some of those messages of you have to struggle or this is how life has to be. No, it doesn't. Um, if enough, I mean, we saw, right. The pandemic showed us that if enough of us collectively want to change the way we function, right. Even how we operate, think about re- remote work has trans been transformational mm-hmm. for disabled folks, yeah. but it took, a pandemic and it took folks in power and able-bodied people with privilege to to make this a reality right. so if enough of us come together collectively to want to change the world we can um and i think that those those cliche moments or those like 
quotes on t-shirts or hats or like, you know, be the change you want to yeah. see in the world, yeah. all those things. I get it now at such a different level that before seemed so, uh, I don't know, uh, idealistic, yeah. but it, it can happen. We, we saw it. Like it, we can't unsee how the pandemic showed us things can change if, if enough want if enough people want it to. That's right. I'm on board with that. I think for me, where I where I find the, the pushback and resistance to a more positive outlook, we have all the answers here in front of us to go from a scarcity you know, mindset or a fixed mindset to a growth mindset and an abundant mindset. The resistance I come up against is like, kind of like the, the backlash against like, say, virtues, you know, like, like, oh, man, you know, like, hey, we, you know, we live in an age and time where we have more mobility and, and equity and less, you know, this, that and the other and uh, uh, more of this, that and the other. And, and it almost seems like you know, to talk about virtues, values, opportunities, glass could be half full is almost like bashed. It's almost, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, no, don't throw, you know, any kind of shade on my shade that I'm wanting to throw yeah, or yeah. sun on my shade, you know, that I'm wanting to keep shady. It's almost like, again, that like, you know, virtue signaling and, you know, is a bad thing. Uh, I, I get where it could be a bad thing. But at the same time, like when I try to bring some positivity or ways of seeing the world that could be more value based, like you were saying, loves the antidote. I could see people raining all over that. So how, what do you say For about sure. like the pushback there on trying to be like, you know, more optimistic about an abundant world and changing the paradigm into that mindset? Yeah, I mean, uh, that that perspective is valid, too, because even though I I have experienced marginalization, oppression in, in different ways, I I'm grateful. You know, I we've talked about I, I'm grateful for my family and the love that I did receive that sort of inherently shaped my, I don't know, core uh, optimism and my naivete, I guess, even and idealism. And so. Uh, other people didn't have that right and so to, to them it is a struggle constantly and it does hurt to exist and there is no solution because you know how do we transform this idea or this idealism of of abundance into practice and until you do that until you connect that through strategy through changes tangible work then it, it it doesn't mean anything for the people that are struggling, sure. right? And that are dying every day, and yeah. that you know are, are can't afford their rent with with skyrocketing prices. So I think all of it is real. All of it is valid. There are multiple truths, multiple perspectives, and multiple realities that we have to accept. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, and I think like um, how would you say then like in terms of like where the movement, you know, the DI movement has been where it is and where it's going. How would you get, you know, give, you know, kind of uh, from your angle, from where you're at, how would, you, how would you see that it's faring right now? What are some of the opportunities, the challenges, what gives you, you know, kind of hope, what's kind of like concerning you about the whole, you know, where we've been, where we are and where we're going? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I sort of share this analogy with paradigm shifting whenever I'm doing like a, DEI training in terms of, you know, as a society or as a human species, we 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 used to believe a lot of things and new information, new knowledge, new science shifted our understanding and it shifted our paradigm. 
you know, folks used to believe that we could sail right off of the ocean floor because we thought that uh -huh. the earth was sure. Right. And new science information allows us to understand the world is round. Right. So we see the world differently. Uh -huh. Literally, we used to think that the atom was the smallest particle. We slice that open, realize there's yeah. even smaller things. Right. Um, I think when it comes to the evolution of DI and seeing justice is that we used to sort of have this equality colorblind paradigm where, you know, we would argue for inclusion and desegregation from a standpoint of, of equality. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, you deserve equal treatment. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, black or white, you deserve equal opportunity, which it, the, the, the core of that is true in terms of that we are equal in terms of human dignity we have all value and worth absolutely but where di has shifted is that the reality of understanding we're not equal in that we don't start off at the same place in life we are we we there are barriers and opportunities for each of us um and until we see difference and identity and dialogue with the communities who are navigating these uh systems then we can't create solutions to create more equity. So we have to move from this colorblind model of, I don't see color, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, or purple. That's sort of a common phrase that we hear, especially from you know, our previous generations might have, have, have heard that the most, um, to now realizing that you know, if you don't see color, you don't see me. If you don't see my disability, then you don't see me because that informs how I'm treated in the world, how I view myself, how I uh, navigate certain things, whether or not I'm uh, accepted in the workplace, right? Whether or not even and beyond sort of the the fluffy stuff, the the inclusion, the belonging, there's real issues, right? So if we don't see difference in identity, we don't see that Roy versus Wade was detrimental to reproductive health rights for women and, and people who can experience pregnancy, right? And, and that, that was decided by, by men and, and folks who also might have had this sort of um, religious inclination that doesn't support pro-choice. So there, there is an importance in seeing difference in identity and so that it can, again, language and articulate what are we are all going through so we can arrive at solutions and so that's how we've seen di sort of change and evolve in terms of colorblind perspective to seeing difference to to also to now moving beyond awareness and moving about beyond commitment statement and and moving beyond all right you know our commercial embrace of di you know we see target by with pride flags we see starbucks with pride stuff and and corporations celebrating black history month so on and so forth right and what now we're seeing is all right we we have to move beyond awareness and into action into how can we translate a commitment into strategy to transform organizations to be more equitable and inclusive for historically marginalized groups that have been continuously left out mm. how do we develop metrics to get us to a point where you know, the highest unemployment rate is not abysmal for, you know, disabled folks mm -hmm. who have living wages. So moving beyond awareness, celebration or commitment into action, into change strategy, whether it's within your workforce or within our sort of uh, civil duties and society um, and, and pushing legislation that, that provides more opportunity. 
And, and as you're saying that, I'm trying to map that on to like, say, like you're talking about, you know, we're, if I'm hearing you right, say as a society, we've gone from, you know, the black and white, you know, colorblind, you know, way of th seeing things to now seeing the, not everybody starts on the same starting line. There is recognition of color and diversity uh, among and, and, and the inequity that might be baked in there. And now we have awareness. Awareness has got into a point to where it's mainstreamed. And now we need to move to the next part where more, you know, quantifiable change strategies and everything else like that. I map that on to like, say, my own journey as a, as a person who's yeah. um, before I was not self-aware. I probably mm -hmm. just like was caught up in just existing and, and not stepping out of like my incessant stream of thinking to where, um, you know, I would see more color in the world. So now when I became more aware of oh, I'm not my thoughts. Oh, I'm not like, who am I? I'm seeing this broader world. I can step out of who I am from a metacognitive level, kind of see things as they're happening to me. I'm becoming more aware. Great. So now I have the, achieved this awareness. Now I'm kind of in a place of like, who am I? Why am I here? And mm. what am I supposed to do? Like, mm -hmm. and I feel like, you know, the way you're explaining this, I just having this kind of like if, if organizations and systems was kind of what I'm going through in terms of this, for me, I think my next steps would be, what is my why? Like what, you know, getting there through the, who am I, the, why am I here? And then wh what is my role here in all of this? And understanding that role, the change strategies might happen, but that all seems to also be baked into, well, what are my values and really living my why, walking my why on a daily basis that might be little steps that ultimately traveled over a long period of time may, might take us somewhere. So I, I don't know if that makes any sense, my metaphor about no. <laughs> trying to use me as an example yeah. to map it onto systemic you know, the change. Uh, but what are your thoughts if I'm, I'm just blabbering on here? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, actually, that's absolutely right. It, it's sort of, okay, I, we get that there's this, these injustices in the world. Now what? Now what do we do about them? And I think that we all can have we all have a sphere of influence and, and can affect change within those spheres of influence um, collectively and individually, right? Whether, you know, you're working for a nonprofit organization and helping to supplement public services and public resources that aren't covered by government programs, then that's, that's great. Or, or for me, for my example, I, you know, I work with various companies, helping them assess their DI maturity uh, helping them understand what are the gaps in inclusion and in equity, and then just the, having them decide, all right, well, how committed are we truly? And can we move from this performative uh, awareness and performative uh, declaration of commitment to DI and actually put our money where our mouth is, mm. make risky decisions, implement some changes, and transform our our organization that's where we are now right what does that take though it, it takes a, a group of bold leaders in that specific organization to commit make those changes and understand that it's going to be risky and complex and that there is a long road ahead and that you might start um, moving the wheel in motion but somebody is going to take on and you're going to it's going to be a relay race right and we're having a sort of a generative understanding that you know, in my lifetime, I might not see the uh, resolution of these injustices mm -hmm. and world, but what I'm doing now and what 
each of us can do is to leave the world a little bit better than we found it for future generations and really recognize that we are one small component right. in this larger galaxy, right? I love going to the ocean because it always puts in mm -hmm. things in perspective for me, right. of like how insignificant we are <laughs> in the galaxy of things, right? And so all you can do is find meaning in, in whatever is meaningful to you. Us who are in sort of social justice circles for you and I who are committed to uh, the service of others, it's one changing hearts and minds through dialogues like this, like exactly what mm -hmm. you're doing. And it's, and it's also through uh, developing strategies by hearing from the communities who are experiencing this. And that's why we're so critical, right? It's because we, we're almost like these intercessors who also experience uh, you know, disability, but but have all of this privilege and knowledge and access to mm -hmm. be able to help be intercessors and connectors so that we can make actual tangible change happen within whether it's services or strategies and organizations to, you know, enhance uh, recruitment efforts for diverse groups or, you know, transform their healthcare packages so that they're inclusive of trans people or of, of folks with pre-existing conditions so on and so forth. So what I largely hear you saying too is, is like bridging the gap between knowing, being aware and doing. Yeah. And it does sound like it takes, um, you're kind of the knowing would be the mind and the doing's the heart. And, and mm -hmm. like you were kind of saying, like as like leaders, it takes courage to take some things and take some risk and, and all these other kind of uh, barriers to it. And it's one thing is to change minds, but to change hearts. Mm -hmm. I think you were kind of hitting on it when you talked about empathy is a skill and to be able to do it you know, in those kind of realms. What, what do you see in terms of some of the barriers in, in your work with organizations getting buy-in then to take these kind of steps? Um, you know, I think you and I were co communicating offline about it's sometimes hard at an organizational level to get these things going, to, to bridge that gap between the knowing and doing. What, what are some of those barriers and what do you see some of the facilitators being in terms of getting around those barriers to make it happen. Yeah, and you might speak to other sort of DI strategists, consultants who are less optimistic or or don't believe as much in sort of the the you know human goodness and and spirit because from that perspective I would say is that people are selfish, right? We are sort of egocentric and companies are concerned with their bottom line and their return on investment. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do we get folks to care about something that doesn't affect them, right? Mm. And these systems of advantage are designed for you not to see them if you're benefiting from them or not to not to complain or, or care to change them if, if they're in your best interest, right? So if, if I'm a, a, a straight, cisgendered, heterosexual male who is affluent, uh, who is white, who is checks all of sort of the, the dominant boxes, mm. then the world around me exists in a way that benefits me and by design, not because I'm I'm not a caring or empathetic individual, but by design, I'm not seeing what the queer or trans kid or disabled folks mm -hmm. are seeing. I'm not experiencing that. So I don't I don't necessarily maybe care to investigate it or I might from my vantage point see it as wait what do you mean we're, we're we there's all of these programs and there's all of these services mm -hmm. why right but i i don't understand that it's not enough yeah that like, the disability benefits that our government provides are not enough uh -huh. right i'm not seeing all of those things so that that's a major issue is is getting companies to want to care 
Uh, and now I think that the 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 public holds them accountable. So they care from a PR standpoint. They care from a, a doing the doing the right things for their employees to avoid any sort of you know litigation or bad press. But in terms of actually changing their policies, processes, structure, maybe divesting from partnerships that are contributing to anti-LGBT legislation or or you know if if let's say I'm a, a, an organization and and my top uh, business partner or vendor is an organization that is known to spread hate rhetoric or their CEOs are involved in anti anything legislation then then I have as a leader I have to make a bold decision of do I divest from this organization to align with my values and my DI commitment and lose out on this opportunity or do I not I mean if you ask someone with a sort of business savvy mindset, if it's going to hurt your bottom line, you're not going to do it. Right. And that doesn't really take uh, an expert to know that. So how do we get people to care? And I think that the next sort of frontier horizon for DI work is tough because it's almost antithetical for me to want to quantify or qualify the ways in which diversity enriches at an organization because it 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 goes back to return on investment. It, it go, goes back to quantifying the worth of an individual, mm-hmm. and that sort of you know yeah. rubs against equity justice sure. uh, conversations. But that's sort of the next step is how do I get these businesses to care to make a change? So and they're only going to care if it helps their bottom line, right? What's their return on investment? So uh, I have to be really creative and use data to support changes, right? And it's easy in some regards, you know, in, in terms of like the research journal article world, you know, how do you gauge the success of a, of a published article? It's how, how frequent cited. it's downloaded, cited, 100% accurate, right? So you see that the articles that have diverse authorship, and not only diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, but diverse in field and discipline, we see those articles being more successful in terms of being cited most, most often, mm-hmm. right? There's something about bringing different minds together that sort of breeds innovation and allows us to just be better. So that works for articles. Uh, now, how can I utilize uh, a similar sort of argument using data for you know a financial institution or a healthcare organization to want to invest in in a DI strategy that changes if I'm not able to quantify how it's going to also help the organization. Kind of reminds me of some of our uh, legislative advocacy efforts that we do. So we're working with you know policymakers and well, on one hand, we're, uh, we kind of use two forms of, of data. You know, one's very quantifiable. So for every you know, dollar that our organization gets to ensure people live in the community and aren't institutionalized, we return six. Because if you had to institutionalize people, 
um, because you didn't give them a wheelchair ramp or uh, allow them to have, you know, some kind of home modification or because, you know, we were able to keep them employed or because like we got them graduated from a school or because, et cetera. You know, you gave us a dollar, you know, we kept them out of institutionalized care. That saved you six for every dollar you gave to us. So right. It's kind of for that quantifiable return on investment. And at the same time, introducing them to somebody that had changed their lives. And they can then speak from the heart about how, yeah. you know, they were, you know, facing, you know, homelessness. And, you know, by, you know, having this program or service, they turned their life around, what it meant to them. They now have a son or daughter they can care for. And it did this, that, and the other. And it's kind of like using the data with, you know, an individual story combined sometimes can be that influence, but I fully get for where the rub is at the end of the day, you know, what is the return on investment? A lot of times I think people that are in that business mindset um, are also in their minds, putting food on their plate. They're providing a living for their family. And yes, I I may want an inclusive and more diverse work environment, but if it's going to be that risk and do I have the courage to be able to take that risk, if it means it's going to impact my family, and I imagine, too, like even like uh, the kind of work once you get into, you know, the organizations that are having the courage to, to even do this. It's just an interesting conversation to have in the workforce. So it's one thing for you and I to have this conversation. And it's one thing for you and I and our, our families or friends or, or other people outside of the sphere of work to have the conversation. But then throw that into the like, you know, fishbowl of a, of a work so, you know, site, you know, and, and it just provides that dynamic. Um, that's interesting. And maybe you can speak to that as well. I mean, I imagine that's also kind of a, a force that's circulating as people have this conversation as well. That could be a facilitator, but also a barrier, you know, into getting things, you know, kind of really open and honest and authentic too. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about it, right? So, or, you know, corporations or, you know, some businesses, companies, what have you, are, are really seeing their employees sometimes as, as a worker. Um, and not necessarily so much about human. And so the, the more that we dehumanize work, the harder it is for us to care about our employees' experience um, and what they're going through. So I, I think to the times where I'm doing executive coaching with, with CEOs and, you know, they're like, well, Jerry, some of these conversations we're not, we're, we shouldn't be having at work, right? Oh, we shouldn't be talking about identity or we shouldn't be talking about socio-political, cultural issues at work. And that's an example of how we are supposed to sort of segment ourselves, compartmentalize who we are, show up at work as a worker and not as a full human. Um, And so, you know, I I think to the times where we've had mass shootings in our country and how business goes on as usual, not even a mention from like one of your meetings, a supervisor saying something as, as, as little but meaningful as I know that we're going through a tough time in our country and, you know, some communities are more impacted than others. And I want to just take a moment to extend my empathy and compassion for those that are hurting right now, even as a, a supervisor is saying something like that in one of your meetings, right? After going through this trauma of seeing your community being impacted, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And and again, it's, it's the dehumanization of work that allows us not to care. Mm. So how do we get folks to care? Yep. Storytelling. Others, I would say, I would agree with you because I'm an optimist. I would agree with you. Like storytelling and, and connecting people, uh, sharing stories helps. Um, my my maybe more less optimist side is saying, well, or, or my the, the side of 
the, the activist side of me who's saying, well, I don't really want people to care. I don't want to change hearts. I just want to, to change structure so that I can exist and not be struggling. Or, or I don't, I don't care if they like me as a person or value me as a, as a, as my identity. But I, what I care is that there are policies and processes in place to make sure that I have the same opportunities as anybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. What we see in history, especially when it comes to social progress and civil rights is that it sometimes takes interest convergence where and what that means is that it's not a priority for the people in power until it in, in until it becomes that for them so you know as a you know, marriage equality for example and didn't become a priority or it didn't sort of reach this interest convergence until it was impacting you know why rich men who are who are also queer right mm -hmm. who want to get married and have the same rights but who all have power and have privilege and who are able to sort of make some sort of change so so same thing we talked about the pandemic interest convergence why did we go remote it, well, it wasn't until it it impacted the people in, with privilege and power the most mm -hmm. right able-bodied folks who can make those decisions to shift the way we operate and so so my, the cynic in me wants to say less about changing hearts and more about changing structures and putting safeguards in place because yeah. we don't want to wait for a benevolent leader all of our life. <laughs> an optimist in me is saying, well, yes, and we can also tap into the human spirit and, and cultivate compassion yeah. and empathy by, by getting together and teaching others, holding their hand through it, yeah. having their best interests in hand and, and loving one another and that sort of guiding us through the process. But again, I am a product of my environment, which was a, a happy, loving household. And that's not everybody's reality. So sure. I, I respect I respect both approaches. And I think they, they both have merit. Sometimes you have you can get what you want through uh, compassion and, and compliments and, and love. And sometimes you get what you want through protesting and setting some things on fire. Sure, so, sure. I, yeah, and, I, and I think it's like um, almost not an either or it's kind of and both like, yeah. like, uh, you know, so we've seen where, uh, OK, we'll change the system, we'll change policies. I mean, you know, there, there's policies in place that uh, let's say you can't discriminate, uh, you know, in the workforce, you got to have equal opportunities when hiring people. Yet, since the ADA was created, which was meant to, you know, create equality and uh, employment rates, it's still the same disparity decades later so we can have all the rules and, uh, and policies in place that change systems but systems are made up of people and people yeah. you know as attitudes beliefs heart it does matter so it's kind of like an and both in so many ways it would be nice if we could compartmentalize and and do that but it's kind of like changing systems and kumbaya you know is almost right. kind of like needed in a way yeah. and it makes it more complicated and maybe we're more right. wired to be one or the other and and less people are like the and boths yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of harder that way. And, you know, and, and like you said, I, I, I do understand the more, you know, kind of pessimistic and, you know, kind of way of being. I, I think it's for me, and maybe you disagree on this, but I almost find that when it comes to, I think you mentioned social justice warriors, you know, and, and so we were certainly in a culture, I find in the nonprofits and, and human services, you know, we mm -hmm. want to make impactful changes that, you know, help to benefit the lives of people. I find that many of people that come into this sphere, myself included, are a bit um, countercultural to normative ways, uh, like to see things that are different, to revolutionize. Um, and then 
um, when you get a group of people that are countercultural, want to revolutionize kind of things, and we're trying to get on the same page, and we're trying to organize, and we're trying to be one and unified, it almost goes against our DNA. Mm. And when I see that, like that almost is an interesting aspect of being organized with a group of people that are kind of anti, I don't know if I would say anti, but kind of countercultural, like I said, you know, and, and almost like it, it, it's hard almost sometimes to get everybody together that are such, you know, kind of want to change the system to become a system to change the system. I don't know if that makes any sense or if you have advice for people that are getting into this space that are really true advocates that really want to make this kind of change, but it also might go up against how we're wired. Yeah, it does. It does make sense. I, I think, you know, there's that really great quote, and that is that you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, right? So to, <laughs> to your point, the people who are who are out there and who don't want to participate in, in you know, changing systems, they want to tear the system down, sure. right? And, and that is valid. That is valid and that is needed. And I think we all have our roles in sort of this fight for justice and social progress is that, you know, we need the people who are willing to change the system internally, you know, one brick at a time, retrofitting, changing hearts and minds, you know, going in, teaching and having that patience. But we also need others who are, who are not, who are, who have had it, right? Who have, who have seen time and time again throughout history that it's not, it doesn't work, right? You can't dismantle the master's house, the master's souls. And so, they're approaching it differently and it and it's valid and important too. So I think I also have to recognize my own privileges that allow me to have this more tempered approach to want to exist within the system while still having one foot out of it and and critiquing while still benefiting from the system, right? And I recognize it's it's my education, my my gender, all of these things that allow me to do both. Some people can't. Yeah. won't even let in to to even do the work within the systems so yeah absolutely kind of like that phrase you know to be in the world but not of the world and uh i think i've mentioned this on a, on a previous podcast not too long ago but i i remember at a very young age when i was going into the school system wanting to change the system from within that's kind of like the advice i got was like you know it's one thing to change the system but it's really hard to do it from the outside it's important to infiltrate the system you know, get to know how the system works in order to become that change agent within the system, like a virus might, you know, kind of like be able to do. What do you feel like the impact of social media might be? You know, you mentioned earlier, it's easy for businesses to dehumanize kind of the issues that are going on. But I also see, you know, there could be an influence there in social media or in modern technologies where the discussion on DI is happening and on all sides here and, and kind of dehumanizing the other and, and all that other kind of stuff might be going on. Like, is it useful? Is it not useful? Is it and both? Like, what are your what are your thoughts in, in this area? Because it definitely seems to be something that's a very powerful force in the whole DI movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think like with anything, we we like to exist in an echo chamber that sort of spits back and sort of reflects the beliefs and ideas that we have. And so what we see on our social media is just a representation of, of that silo. So, you know, the further that we create in-groups and out-groups, the more polarized we become. And I struggle with that, right? Because I, I think as you know, someone who does experience racism and homophobia 
I, I want to not have anything that is not reflective of, of the messages that tell me that I have value, that I have worth for who I am as an individual. And I don't want to see sort of the opposite rhetoric. Um, but, you know, how can, how can we not convince, but, but encourage and tap into the empathy and compassion of the people that don't see that? A lot of social justice advocates and would, would argue that we don't need to and we don't have to, right? You don't have to convince someone that your existence matters, especially if they fundamentally have to deconstruct their whole belief system in order to accept you. Like I mentioned before, there's these different approaches that are valid. Um, I think for me, when it comes to DI and disability, is that we aren't we aren't centering disability enough in DI conversations and topics, both you know in social media, but also on in our DI efforts from a sort of company uh, perspective when we're working on DI change strategy. Um, we're, we're not because I think that 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 group becomes easily rationalized as to why they cannot be included because of a certain lack of capacity to perform a skill set. Mm. And that sort of goes back to the dehumanization of people. Mm. Um, when in reality, every if we believe the opposite, if we believe that everybody has worth and value and can contribute meaningfully, then we would find a way to have them be part of the organization and have them work and share their skills and talents, right? Yeah. Through transforming access, right? And redesigning just what what the workplace looks like. I mean, think of how many folks with cancer, Crohn's disease, all of these right. disabilities have been asking for remote participation and now can do their work fine from home, right? Now we can engage freely uh, in the workplace, but before that wasn't a reality. So I think it's definitely important for us to center disability more and more as we discuss DI diversity and, and creating more equitable opportunities. For sure. So like kind of like maybe to, to, to bring all this together in a way that, yeah. you know, might be very visionary. You know, I read a lot of stuff about you and it's you got it like a, you're a visionary. I don't know if futurist might be the right word or not, but let's imagine like you have your um, mountaintop, you know, kind of speech that you want to give. Like, where do you see like this utopia? If we're going to like go to if there was a finish line that we got to cross to create the world that we're, that you're working so hard to steer us towards, what does that world look like and how do we get there? Oh man, uh, you know, and not to get too uh, theory-based, but there's, there's right, there's this um, rub with wanting to always reach utopia, uh -huh. right? There's, there's actually, you know, really smart people who argue against sort of the, the search for utopia mm -hmm. or that that sort of finality being where we want to arrive right uh, and where we're sort of holding our breath in the process yeah. rather in cultivating instead maybe micro spaces of justice and utopia and where we exist now mm -hmm. and and just using your influence to create those those changes that might seem radical now but in a few years are going to seem like oh of course why didn't we do that and so i think for the, the only the only advice I would give or not advice, but rather considerations is, is you know, when we're when we're long gone and our kids and our kids kids are, are here to continue, you know, existing on this planet, 
you know, what would we want them to, how would we want them to, to live and what would we want them to experience and what would we want their happiness to look like? And if it's, and if, if we're scared of that, right, it, we are sort of limited to only understanding oppression, then, then how can we ever conceive of alternative realities where we reach that utopia? So maybe considering what can I do? What is my, what is my sphere of influence? How can I activate to promote justice, equity in my microcosm, whether it's in your local community, whether it's you don't have to work for a big corporation, you don't have to lead a nonprofit organization, you can be a singular citizen of the world working to bring people together, involve yourself, find meaning in that, and and leave the world a little bit better than we found it through through connection and sharing your story, compassion and empathy building. So that's what I would I say. I love it. And you know, it's more about process than destination. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Like it's more about process sure. than than ever arriving. Like the and that, I do love that. You know, it's like it's an illusion that like this will be some place and some utopia. We'll get we'll get to heaven. You know, Nirvana. You know, this place of enlightenment. Right. It's more about the path. You know, what are we doing? And uh, you know, doing some of the you know background uh, you know reading on you. I, I love this one kind of a description of you as being like this emotionally intelligent relationship builder. Yeah, like you had me at emotionally intelligent. <laughs> you know, believing that challenge, you know, changing people's hearts and minds, and we talked a lot about that, begins yeah. with uh, connecting to their why. Yeah. I love that. Emotionally intelligent relationship builder begins with really changing people's hearts and minds by beginning with their why. Yeah. So, so many of us walk through life not arriving or knowing what our why is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the more that we tap into that and connect to... You know, why do you exist and why do I exist and, and why are we here together and why did our paths cross and, and how can we sort of cultivate and generate anything positive in our interactions and storytelling and sharing that will, will completely transform my, my small perspective of the world. And similarly, I will impact your perspective of the world and we are better off for it. There is this great uh, quote from one of my favorite musicals, Wicked, which is, it says, I don't know if I've been changed for the better, but because I knew you, I have been changed for good. Ooh. So that's what I would say to close us out for you and for me. Uh, Tony, I love that our paths have crossed and some, some, you know, destiny to yeah. allow us to, to meet. And I cherish our conversations and, and I truly believe that you are doing great things to, <sighs> to elevate the importance of inclusion, especially for the disability community. So thank you for all that you do well, as well. That means a lot coming from you, Jerry. You know, as I open with this with, like, I learned so much in, in my conversations with you. Like, I'm going to, I have to go back and re-listen to some of what you said because it's just so wide and deep. And I know you're just dropping nuggets left and right. And uh, I can't wait to read your book. If you're not writing a book yet or even thought of a book, there's got to there's gotta be a book or two in you that has some of this that I can just take with me and pull out anytime, man. Jerry in my pocket, you know, is what I need. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. But, um, you know, uh, I get the, Jerry, we love to hear your, your vision. And then, all right, we need some more concrete, tell me what to do now so we can make the world. Better. I don't know. That's, that's, 
you, we got to figure out together. So. Yeah, well, it's the knowing and doing. And, and for me, it's the inspiration. Like sometimes I just need my bucket refilled. Yeah. And uh, that connecting, again, lifts, lifts me up at least, you know, to be able to talk to you and to really kind of dive into how you see the world. What I really appreciate and want to acknowledge about you for, and, and I know you credit a lot of the, your lived experiences and your you know, social and family upbringing, is that you know you're, you're able to straddle both sides. I think you're able to understand and resonate with the struggle, the challenge, the the oppression, and at the same time, you're also able to see the the higher values and virtues that can really lift people up. Yeah. And it's an and both. It's not either or. And I think that's a really special place to come from, Jerry. And so we're again, I, I think it goes back to process versus destination. So it just really it helps me out a lot to, to to be infused and to connect with you and to to ha have our paths cross. So thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate you. All right. Till the next time, Jerry. Onward. All right. And upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.